Good morning, friends. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Silas Sham, associate pastor here. And um, before we come to the scriptures, let's have a quick word of prayer. God, we are so grateful for the gift of this day, for this time to gather as your people. And we pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word and that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Make us new this morning, God. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Make America great again. Without a doubt, four of the most polarizing words in our culture. Right? For some, this is idyllic. Right? This serves as a tagline of hope. Words that are pointing this country to rediscover a past when everything seemed right. When all was right with the world. And for some, this seems less idyllic. This serves as a tagline of hopelessness. Words that are pointing this country to regress by pursuing an America that privileged the personhood of some over and against the personhood of others. Make America great again. Four of the most emotionally charged words in recent history. You don't believe me? Everyone take a pulse of how you feel right now. Your body is tense. You're anxious. You're thinking, what is going on? I came to church. Like, what is happening right now? Where are you going with this? Like, take note of yourself right now. Notice your body. Notice your feeling. Notice your emotion. This is uncomfortable. It's an interesting proposition, isn't it? Like, who doesn't want to experience greatness? Who doesn't want to be great? Taken strictly on face value, one would assume that this shouldn't be as divisive as it is. But of course, that assumption fails because it supposes that the definition of great is uniform. Right? That greatness for me means it's the same as greatness for all. That everyone who hears these four words, these little words, are all hearing the exact same thing. Make America great again. It's such a nebulous phrase. It's so vague. It says everything without explicitly saying anything. So this is an abrupt start, I know. But this is what is at stake in our passage this morning. Right? The world that the disciples are living in overlaps in our world with incredible similarity. Like, even though we are millennia apart, the world that the disciples are in in this text is so similar to where we are today. Take a look at the text if you're following along in your outline. We're about to get to point one. Knowing the will of the Lord. Knowing the will of the Lord. Notice how this passage starts. Right? To begin with, we get a nice little recap. It's like the one or two verses that connect this book, Acts, to the book of Luke. 
You know, typically, they're understood to be two parts. Right? So it's like the, um, the 30-second recap on Netflix. It just ties us back to everything that happened before, but then we're going to look at all that in a different lens. That's what this is happening, the first two verses. And then we get to verse 3. He, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them, the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Speaking about the kingdom of God. So 40 days, what have they heard over and over and over again? The kingdom of God. Jesus tells them about the kingdom of God. They've heard about it. And a quick note here, is it 40 actual days? Is it longer than that? Typically, if you're in the Jewish audience, if you hear this, 40 days is an idiom for it's a really long time. So 40 days, sure, it could be that. It could also be much longer than that. But all this is meant to do, again, is tie this book, Acts, back to Luke, the beginning. Make sense? So since the beginning of their journey with Jesus, the disciples have been taught about the kingdom of God. Everyone tracking? So in verse 4, we hear Jesus, he tells them to wait, to hang out in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, and specifically to wait until they're all baptized with the Holy Spirit, until the Spirit comes upon them. And that won't be many days from now. Now again, from an objective reading comprehension perspective, what message have the disciples been saturated with over the last 40 days, like since the beginning of Luke? They know all about the kingdom of God by proofs over and over and over again. You know, the kingdom of God is mentioned in Luke over 40 times. Like Jesus talks about it everywhere. And we have the, um, the Lord's Prayer. In Luke, when it happens specifically, this is specifically directly from Luke 11, notice the first petition. It says, Father, hallowed be your name. And then what's the first thing that we were taught to pray? Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Straight from Luke 11. Again, if there's one thing the disciples have heard, if there's one thing they know, they know all about the kingdom of God. That's the message that has been over them over and over and over again. But continue on. Notice what happens next. For all the time they have spent with Jesus, for all the teaching, for all the proof, for all the times Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, notice what good this does for the disciples. We get to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We all see the irony here, right? Like, the disciples know Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, but even though they know this, after all the time, all the knowledge they've come to absorb, all the lessons they've heard, we as readers see what the disciples have actually heard all the times he was talking about the kingdom of God. We as readers see that the disciples, 
have heard a message that is exclusive, that's about them. It's Israel-centric, it's nationalistic. It is a message that they hear when they hear the kingdom of God. And Jesus will correct this overall in the next bit of the passage, but do not overlook this moment right here. Right, they're still going to ask Jesus, Jesus, when are you going to make Israel great again? When are you going to make our nation great again? Like, when are you going to restore us to our rightful place? We're occupied by another occupying power right now. Rome is here. But when are you going to bring, bra- bring back the prosperity? When are you going to do this, Lord? They have heard the word of the Lord. They've come to know the will of the Lord. But this is what point two is. They haven't discerned what Christ's message meant. They haven't discerned the character of God. They haven't discerned the character of God. Everything, everyone doing okay? This is the gravity of the disciples' world here. And this is the church in its infancy. Like, the church is just beginning in Acts. It is a tense time. Do you see our world in their world? Do you see it? There's so many times in our lives where we do very similar things. We do almost the exact same thing. Sometimes with God, more often with people. So, I'm probably not the only one who's ever done this. Maybe you were never quite as sneaky as me. But I remember one time when I was a little kid, I asked my parents for some ice cream, and they said, yes, this is great news. This is wonderful. I love ice cream. Delicious treats headed my way. But then my parents follow up with one of the most dreaded phrases an eight-year-old can hear. You can have one scoop. So yes, you can have one scoop. Now, we've all been here again before. I'm sure the parents in the room know the struggle from the other side of this story. But my parents say, I can have ice cream, I can have one scoop. And this is a bit problematic for me because I know there are two types of ice cream I want in the freezer. I don't actually remember the two flavors. I was talking to someone earlier, though. I think it might have been like cookies and cream, pralines and cream together. All the creams. It would have been good. So eight years old, I analyze the situation. I think about it. I'm brainstorming, and I think, oh, perfect solution. I got it. I open the drawer. I reach towards the ice cream scoop. And then I reach right past it to the large rice scooper. It's about like this big. It's about three times the size. It's much bigger. And then I create a fusion of two ice creams into one, the mega scoop, the biggest scoop you could ever imagine, okay? It was delicious. It was good. And so it probably weighed three pounds. It was huge. (laughs) Again, I'm eight. And so my parents see this, and they're like, okay, you did get one scoop. You're right. Hope you don't get sick. And so I indulge in this aggressive dip. I do this, and then I eat it. Of course I get sick. It's totally worth it, but my parents were right. I got sick, and I understood what they said. Did I obey my parents? 
By every letter of the law, yes, one scoop of ice cream. Good job, Silas. But when I did this, did I discern the nature or the character of my parents' words? Not even a little bit. Like, I understood what they said. You get one of these. I went above and beyond myself. I understood what they wanted. And then I went against that. I transgressed that. This is exactly what is going on for the disciples, but it is on a much more serious level. Like, we're not talking about ice cream and sickness. This is much more serious for them when they fail to discern the character of God in the words of God. So in this passage, they know the will or the word of the Lord, but they fail to discern how God is in those words what God is actually meaning when he's saying those words. So think back to their request again. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Just like there is no universal American American consensus about what make America great means again. We have to assume that for the disciples they would have been just as fractured when it came to defining greatness. Like, do not forget, the disciples are a rowdy group of people who have been brought together who are not like each other at all. You have blue-collar fishermen. You have business owners. You have tax collectors and publicans, people who have turned against their own people to become shills for the Roman government. And then you have zealots and religious fundamentalists in one group. And you're going to say they have a uniform, agreed-upon vision for what it meant when they asked Jesus to restore the kingdom of Israel? When they asked him to restore the greatness of the land? Think about that. Of course not. Even though they know what Jesus said even though they've lived with Jesus, it hasn't changed their understanding of God's kingdom. They've gained information straight from the source. But they haven't been transformed by that source. They've received all the information, but they haven't let it transform their lives. And so this information about the kingdom, about the breadth of God's redemption that is meant to break down ethnic, religious, and cultural divides, this information about the scope of God's redemption hasn't permeated the disciples' hearts. They have been informed, but they haven't been transformed. And for the disciples, in this instance, for all the good teaching they have absorbed, it hasn't done them any good. Like, regardless of how true their knowing of God's word has been, they haven't been made to be more true people. And this is something that, for many of us, you know, in the Protestant, evangelical, charismatic traditions, if we grew up in these traditions, In some of these expressions of Christianity, we have privileged knowing God or experiencing God above the character of God. We've privileged the experience or the knowing above 
the character of God being formed in us. And so earlier this week, in our first session of our Engaging Scripture class, we reflected on this phrase. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Maybe you had the bumper sticker. Maybe you've seen it before. Right? The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And for some of us, our Christianity formed us to imagine that hearing from God saves us from the task of discernment. Right? It saves us from having to process that word. But hear me, Bethany. Hearing from God doesn't save us from discernment. Discernment is the very act that God is trying to save us through. Okay? We are made more like Christ when we are wrestling and discerning, and we aren't saved from discernment, we are saved through discernment. Is this clear? Right? I can't understate how important this is. We aren't saved from discernment. We are saved through the process of discerning. So has anyone followed the story of John Ernest? Last week, just last week in San Diego, he carried out the tragedy there. You know, it was striking. It was like the tragedy in Christ Church. There were a lot of overlaps in terms of how they did what they did. And it appears that John, who is a member of a Presbyterian Orthodox church, where his father is an elder, where he's a member he attended regularly, did the same thing. He put out a manifesto before he committed his crimes. I don't think you can find it online anymore. Um, It was only online for a little bit, and then it kind of got scrubbed. I was able to actually read some of it, And the way he talks about how his Christian faith justifies what he was doing, how he uses terms that we would use in this church, how he references scriptures and passages that we have read if we've been growing up in the faith, it was incredibly disturbing. Listen to the words of a pastor from within this guy's tradition, okay? from within the own tradition. He says, we have to realize it is possible to teach people in the church about personal salvation, about Jesus Christ, and still fail to instruct them regarding the ethical implications of that faith. And then he says, we need to preach a vision of the gospel that includes implications for the love of neighbor, and those who are different from ourselves. To reach, or to teach that it is as essential to teach that as a gospel of grace, and that that's not just an add-on, like that makes up the faith. Friends, this happened a week ago. This is a word for us if we call ourselves Christians. Like the disciples, like John Ernest, on a lighter note, like me with ice cream, right? It is not enough to know the word or the letter of the law. It's not enough to know the word or will of the Lord without discerning the character of God. The word of the Lord doesn't just 
doesn't mean anything to us if we don't read these words and discern the character of God in these words. So the Bible, the thing we read every Sunday, we gather around it, we hear from it. It doesn't do us any good if it doesn't point us to Jesus. That's what it means when we're Christians. Other people will read the Bible every Sunday who aren't Christians, who will say they're not Christians, and they're reading it in a very different way. We don't read the Bible, or we don't worship the Bible. We worship the, the one that the Bible points to. Is that clear? Like for Christians, we want to be people of Scripture, but we're only people of Scripture because we desire to hear the word of the Lord in those words. We search the Scriptures because we desire to encounter the one whom the Scriptures are pointing to. Many of us have been Christians for a long time. We know the stories. We can quote the verses. We know how to be on. Like, we, 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 we cross these doors, and we're in church mode. We know how to do that, because we've been conditioned to do it. Or we're walking around town, but as soon as we see someone we recognize from church, church mode. And then we're off as soon as they leave. We are experts in church life. And I'm a pastor. Like, this is very real in my life. Do you recognize, in terms of equivalent hours, if you have been in church for about one-ish to two hours every week, that every eight and a half years, you will have experienced the equivalent amount of instruction to an undergraduate degree in Christianity. Do you realize that? Have you ever thought about it that way? Some of us have been in church more frequently than that, have been in church three, four, five, six times more than that. We know the word of the Lord. We've been taught many things. But in reflecting on all that we know, Have we discerned the character of God in all of our knowing? It's a big question for us. Just as this is the first passage about the birth of the the church, the genesis of the church, the same question that faces the disciples faces us this morning. And it is this. In what ways have we heard God speaking about his kingdom? And understood God to be talking about a kingdom that is made in our own image. Like in what ways have we heard God saying, this is my kingdom, this is who we are, this is what I'm all about. And we've heard that and said, awesome. So the kingdom looks like this, and we translate it to ourselves. Make no mistake, friends, this is a challenging text. Not because it's really conceptually dense, but it's challenging because it asks us questions as individuals and as a community that pierce us in our vulnerability. So like the disciples, when it comes to church, when it comes to our personal lives, when it comes to job security, financial success, relationship status, the kingdoms around us that we create, all the things we have asked God for, 
we oftentimes come with this question, when will the rain be ours? Have you ever asked this before? Dissatisfaction in our personal season can make this line of questioning really, really attractive. Our sense of fulfillment in life doesn't happen the way we imagined it, and this question becomes really, really central to who we are. God, when will you make us rulers? When will you restore our reign? When will you make us great? But this is a misguided question. Jesus doesn't want us to ask, when will this reign be ours? He wants us to ask, how might we join you, Jesus, in widening your reign? How might we participate with you in widening the reign of Christ? How might we join in the transforming of the world towards faithfulness? How might we do that? How might we be transformed and transform as a product of being more informed? How are we discerning the character of God in the world around us? In our assumptions, in our biases, in our readings of of the world, in our readings of scripture, Like, how is the character of God being formed in us? This brings us to our final point for the day. To live a Christian life, we need to know the will of the Lord, discern the character of God, and then we act accordingly. Know the will of the Lord, discern the character of God, and act accordingly. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see the corrective? Jesus spends his earthly ministry telling the disciples about the kingdom of God. The disciples still think that Jesus is talking about Israel. And then Jesus corrects their thinking and invites them into full participation, not as evangelists, not as apologists, not as spokespeople. Those all have their own unique Greek words, but as this, as martis. Jesus says they will be his witnesses. It's the same word as martyr. The disciples will join with Christ, the one broken for the sake of the world, so that all might come to know the love and being of God. And in that way, being a disciple costs us. Looking past our passage into the next chapters in Acts, the disciples seem to get it over time. They get what God is talking about, what Jesus is talking about. They discern the character from the words as we move through the book of Acts. 
by the power of the Spirit, the message that they came to know is that Jesus wants them to recognize the scope of his kingdom. And in doing this, what they know and what they discern, it causes them to act as witnesses to the kingdom, where in Acts 2, they speak in such a way that people from all over the known world hear the word of the Lord translated into their own particular language and context. This is how they act in this book. They know, they discern, they act. They know, they discern, and then they act. Where does this leave us this morning? Really quickly, I want you to think back to Genesis 19 when Lot, his wife, and his two daughters were fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, think back to this story. We remember the story. Sodom and Gomorrah are, under, are understood to be exceedingly wicked cities, right? And then two angels, they show up to Lot, his wife, their two daughters, and takes them by the hand and tells them, flee for your lives because God is about to destroy the city. And they're told, do not look back. Don't stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. So they flee. They run. But when, then we're told that while the Lord was destroying the city, all those living in the cities, all the vegetation in the land, when all that was happening, Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. This is a harrowing story, isn't it? It's a heavy story. What do we know from this passage? There's a city, wicked city. Angel gives two specific commands. Flee, don't look back. We have a story of escape, and then we see Lot's wife disobey the command from before and then turned into a pillar of salt. This is what we know. Now, at this point, if we have heard this text preached before, what is normally pulled out of this text? What do we glean from this? Obey the Lord or suffer the consequences. God is a God of justice. If you break the law, you will get what you deserve. You reap what you sow. This is how we teach this text. This is how we preach this text. But pause. Discern the character of God in this text, friends. Discern the character of God in the things we know about this text and discern how Jesus, the one that all these scriptures point to, the one who makes our faith what it is, discern how Jesus is present in this text. We're not going to stay here too long. This isn't a rhetorical question, by the way. We're going to take 10 seconds and think about this. Discern. Okay, 10 seconds. Start now. There's a rabbinical reading of this story that absolutely wrecked me the first time I heard it. 
specifically when it comes to Lot's wife, who was turned into a pillar of salt. The reading says, Lot's wife looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah, not out of a desire for evil, but instead through eyes of compassion. And she wept with such sadness at the loss of life that her whole body became tears, leaving nothing but salt. Like Christ weeping over Jerusalem, who will later die at the accusation of the city he is crying over, Lot's wife looks back in grief and in defiance because she cares about the lives in that city that will be lost so much. Discern the character of God. Who reflects the character of God revealed to us in Jesus in this passage? Who reflects Jesus in this text? Whose heart reflects the brokenness of God? Who's willing to perish because of the intensity of their love? Does your compassion match the fervor of Lot's wife? Desire that, friends. This is what the Christian life is about. This is what I mean when I say discern the character of God. Find Jesus in the text. Because he's there and he's in every inch of this world around us. To be holy is to recognize that we are called to be Christ's hands and feet extended to all, even if that means our death. And again, that is costly. We downplay that. The Christian life isn't supposed to take us out of the world. Instead, it thrusts us into the evil of this world around us, the pain, the shame that we experience ourselves. It puts us right there so that Christ will be made known in the brokenness of the world and in our brokenness. If the band would come up. By the power of the Spirit, be transformed into someone who knows the word of the Lord, who discerns the character of God, and who acts accordingly. And this isn't meant to just happen in church. You know, we talk about acts. In this passage, we also have the whole idea of the Spirit coming upon you. And we think this is like the first time where it happens. Does anyone know who is said to be filled with the Spirit? Who the first person in the Bible is? Happens in Exodus 31. Bazalel, the son of Uri, way back in Exodus. The text says, God filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge of all kinds, of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. That is the first person we see who is filled with the Spirit of God in the text. The influence of God's Spirit isn't reserved for church or for ministry or for times at the altar. It is reserved and it is open for all in all, wherever you are. 
So like Bezalel, whatever vocation you are in, wherever you are at, the Spirit is on every single one of us so that in all those places we find ourselves, we might be people who act according to the character that we discern from God, and all that comes from what we know about God. We're going to pray before we come to the table this morning. And at the table, we encounter Christ as well. I was wrestling all week with how to end this sermon. I feel like we need to pray specific for two things. In this room, there might be people who they know God, but you want to be able to better discern God. If that's you, we will pray with you and for you. And then there's also, there might be people who desire a bigger dose of boldness to be able to act on what they discern, wherever you are at, whatever that looks like. If that's you, we will pray with you and for you this morning. So let us pray. I'm going to pray over us. Join in prayer for yourselves, for people you may know, their stories who need prayer as well. If you are one of these two people in either of these groups, now this isn't magic, but I find it helpful sometimes to posture myself in a way to hear the word of God and receive what God has for us. Again, it's not magic, but it sets myself in a way that I'm just more receptive. And so, if you're comfortable doing so, maybe it's opening your hands like this, a simple posture of reception. This posture also might be one where you're offering something to God to say, hey God, I don't know what to do with this, with this situation in my life, with what's going on, I don't know. But you're God. Change me, transform me. Let all the things I hear not just be information, but transform my life so that I can transform the world around me. Let us pray. I'm going to pray over us and we'll come to the table shortly after. If you want prayer specifically, Joni and Kurt are over there. They would love to pray with you as well. Oh God, we pray in this moment, Lord, that you would be with us. that your spirit would be over us, the God who filled the world with life and energy and love, who birthed everything into being, who created every person in this room, that you would reveal yourself in ways that we would be able to then discern your character, God. And in our discerning, would you make us truer people? Would you make us people who are more like you, Lord? Would we be able to recognize how you are at work in our lives? And would you empower us to act according to your will discerned from all that we know? We can't do this by ourselves. 
We need your touch. And so, Lord, be near to us and come quickly. We are grateful for your spirit. And we pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Amen.